Yeah. But we got to get the guy cleaned up, okay? But you understand, you got to get an MRI so we get that off your record. So when you do this, you're looking for like any scars or like um, looking for bleeding, looking for swelling in the back of the eye, stuff like that. So um, put your hands out, make a nice fist for me. Good. I'm used to getting booed, Steve. I mean, that's basically it. When I come in the ring, it they're booing um, because they know, you know, I may end the fight. Welcome to More Life. In this episode, Hartford HealthCare's Steve Coates talks with sports neurologists Dr. Anthony Alessi and his daughter, Dr. Stephanie Alessi LaRosa. They're both part of the sports neurology program at Hartford HealthCare's Iyer Neuroscience Institute. This father and daughter team share a passion for boxing and MMA. That is, a passion to fight to make these sports safer and protect the fighters from serious brain injury. They take us ringside and describe what they are looking for in the fighters during the fight that might compel them to end the fight. Here's Steve Coates. So, Stephanie, your dad is kind of a legend when it comes to sports neurology. If anyone has watched boxing, MMA, or seen any reports on ESPN or national reporting on concussion in sports or the NFL, they've certainly heard of Tony Alessi. What made you go into the family business when so many kids are, you know, probably rebelling against what their parents do? Do you remember, you know, being ringside as a kid? Yeah, it's interesting, actually. Uh I kind of had a weird balancing act of trying to find my own way and not do what he does. And, and then and then I sort of felt like, you know, I was always drawn back to the neurology patients, no matter what I was doing in, in medical school. And then uh, from there, I, I definitely, you know, was ringside, I guess, in high school or college or whatever, sometimes, you know, seeing what, what he does and just thinking how great it is to work with athletes and if there was a way to kind of make the two blend um like he had really led the way with sports neurology as a field you know so i really sort of felt like that was actually a really good fit for me and what what my goals were uh professionally so it sort of came around organically but yeah i definitely had my moments where i thought no let me try and you know maybe i'll be a pediatrician or maybe i'll be an OBGYN. you know i had those times but uh always came back around uh to neurology and then eventually sports and, and being ringside with him hey steve that was their way of rebellion okay I have three daughters, okay? Their rebellion was, none of us are gonna be doctors. Who wants to do what you do, okay? Everybody should have children who rebel that way, okay? So one became an attorney and two became neurologists. So they finally came around to see the light, but that was their rebellion as young people. None of us are gonna do what dad does. And so, so now it's kind of full circle. You get to work with your dad at fights, a father-daughter team working in sports neurology. As you were watching him as you grew up and when you were in medical school, now now you're his peer. That's got to be kind of surreal. Uh, for me, it's just been pretty amazing in, in terms of now looking back on those years and saying, wow, you know, I guess that really was something that I, I was exposed to it, you know, so then that sort of stuck with me, even if I wasn't thinking of it that way. <laughs> um, and then now feeling like, oh, wow, you know, I'm, I'm a sports neurologist, I'm ringside with my dad, and we're taking care of fighters and combat sports athletes, and among others. And um, it really is fun. I mean, obviously, having his wisdom and his experience and being part of 
forming the field of sports neurology uh, and, you know, kind of being there to witness it all has really helped me a lot in my career and in my approach to things and having sort of a well-rounded view of stuff, you know, as much as I, as I can, as a young attending now um, physician. And so that's sort of been my experience with it, but um, it's been nothing but fun and really just happy to work with him and, and have those times together and memories. And Tony, I've, I've known you for almost a decade now, and you've kind of been omnipresent on the, on the sports and sports neurology scene. Uh, for more than 25 years, I never really asked you about your journey. It's it's an interesting journey to get to where you are. You know, Steve, it's interesting because uh, I never set out to be a sports neurologist. As a matter of fact, there was no such thing as sports neurology. And it really started for me back in 1995 when I started working with the New York Yankees. Um, but in 1997, while working at Bacchus Hospital, and, and again, it's an Eastern Connecticut thing, and there used to be a requirement that all fighters had to have an EEG once a year. So I found myself at various periods reading a bunch of EEGs like on a Friday, you know, getting ready for what was to be a fight the next day. And I would have to call the doctors and the commissioner with reports. And I said, well, what's going on? And they said, well, we have to do EEGs. They said, would you like to come to a fight? Now, I'd never been to a fight. I was never a fan. And actually, I'm still not a fan. Um, from the standpoint that Stephanie and I know that our role at ringside is to advocate for the fighter. And it, it's very important to assume that role because at many times we're the only people there advocating for that fighter, including their corner people and everyone else. So our job is to advocate for the fighter and keep them alive at the end of the day. So working at Bacchus Hospital, they asked me to come out to a fight. And they said, would you like to work with us? And I said, well, do I get to end the fight? They said, yeah, that's what we pay you to do. So I said, then I'm your guy. So uh, that was 25 years ago. So it was one of those things that I kind of, kind of backed into through an opportunity that I had through Bacchus Hospital and uh, ended up uh, really taking on a role now uh, with Stephanie of advocating for extreme athletes who are self-employed. Um, you know, it's a big difference when you're working for a team where the athletes are employed. They get a check whether they play or not. But these extreme athletes only get paid if they go in the ring or they get on a bull uh, and because they're self-employed. So it becomes, our decisions become more crucial um, despite the fact that they still want to participate um, our job is to keep them alive, as I said. So for me, it's been great. And it's great having Stephanie, who has adopted the same philosophy. What's also encouraging is that same philosophy has been adapted by Hartford Healthcare. Uh, when Steph was hired, uh, Jeff Flax and Mark Alberts came to me and asked if I'd like to join the team at Hartford Healthcare. Uh, and, and to work with them. And they made it clear when we chatted, that was their goal. I mean, it was the same goal to really take our program regionally and then nationally, but always to advocate for the fighter. And in the past year, we've done that. 
Uh, and that's what's been key. We now have national recognition in the field of combat sports to provide services to athletes in order to keep them safe. So it's been a tremendous evolution for me at this stage of my career. For people who might not be familiar, Jeff Flax is the president and CEO of Hartford Healthcare, and Dr. Mark Alberts is the co-physician and chief of the Iron Neuroscience Institute. Let me ask both of you now, MMA is becoming hugely popular, continues to grow, surpassing boxing. It's really big business with pay-per-view, obviously some serious betting going on as well. The pressure, not only for you protecting the fighters, but just being on that international stage has to be amazingly intense. Honestly, I don't think about that pressure. I don't even think about those people because it's really about, you know, the fighter. And I'm just trying to, you know, I'm, I'm watching every blow to the head, every potential injury. I'm trying to see it before it happens, you know, and, and as their clinical changes start coming, maybe they get flat footed, maybe they start getting a little uncoordinated or they're not using one of their hands as much, you know, that kind of stuff. We, we have to be just so hyper vigilant about everything because that's our first exam you know everything is just so hyper acute being ringside and cage side so um so that's really all we can do is just focus on what is happening and and it's you know we we kind of take each a corner and and we're kind of looking at that one fighter but we have to be looking at both fighters honestly and and you know to some extent just being aware of everything that's going on from a neurologic and safety perspective so, I mean, yeah, those things are certainly there, you know, they're, they're there in the background as people are betting on it and they, they are corner guys and coaches are invested in it and their promoters invested in it. And, but it's been nice the way that we are able to, you know, really not worry about those things and not have to because that is really not how being a physician, we really owe it to the, we work for the, the patient, you know, and the athlete in that setting. So, so that's really the best way to, to keep a good view on what's important in that moment, because it, it can change on a, on one, one hit, you know, so, um, so that's really important. Yeah, Steph hit the nail on the head with that one. We don't really feel that pressure you know, there's a lot of betting and that people would love to get information, but obviously we're bound by HIPAA. But um, I'm used to getting booed, Steve. I mean, that's basically it. When I come in the ring, it, they're booing because they know, you know, I may end the fight. And, and that's okay. But when you find out about it is afterwards on the internet. So, for example, in a recent fight, uh, a fighter had a scalp laceration that was hemorrhaging profusely. And the rule is that the cut man has to stop the bleeding in the corner. If it's still bleeding after they finish working on him, then you end the fight. Well, in this case, it not only wasn't stopped, but there was there was blood pumping out, uh, if you can imagine, from this guy's skull. And I, I was holding it with a towel that was filling up with blood. And I ended the fight, obviously. His corner still thought he could go. And in fact, they filed a formal complaint with the commission that I fought, I ended the fight too soon, um, despite that he was hemorrhaging profusely. The commissioner uh, actually got a good laugh out of that because the video was all on live TV. Our greatest problem is really for the lower level fights, not the high level Bellator, UFC level fights. It's the lower level fights where people get paid by the round. So there are some fights where you get paid 
if you can last X number of rounds. So they'll want to go a lot longer than they should. So people hear the term fight doctor. There, There is a lot more that goes on for you before and after the fight too, right? Go ahead, Dad. Yeah, you can. Okay. So, you know, again, it's a changing role. So typically uh, our role is to review the medicals they provide. They have each fighter needs uh, an imaging study at some point in their career and a neurologic exam by a board-certified neurologist once a year. They also need EKG. They need an eye exam. They need uh, blood tests for hepatitis uh, and uh, hepatitis B, hep C, and uh, as well as HIV. What's changed in the last year has been the need for COVID testing um, because obviously they are unmasked in the ring as is the referee. So we put together a program along with Hartford Healthcare and so many divisions and people involved in Hartford Healthcare. Uh, I can't even name everyone between lab people, couriers, people collecting samples. And they would do this every day for the week prior to the fight in order to make it safe. So we've done over 10,000 tests just at Mohegan Sun since July 24th of last year. And I'm proud to say our positivity rate for all of that was a 0.4%, which is unbelievable. So 0.4% positivity rate. So we've been able to protect them. The day before the fight, we do a physical examination, including a brief neurologic screening exam to make sure it's safe for the fighter to get into the ring the following day. So, there is a lot of preparation. I often tell people we end more fights at the weigh-in uh, than in the ring because we'll find people who are unfit for one reason or another and won't allow that fight to go on. So when you're ringside and you're and you're watching the fight, what are some signs that a fighter may be in trouble? Yeah, there's so many. I mean, the, I think the initial ones that I'm constantly looking at is, well, first of all, how many hits to the head is that person really taken? You know, what kind of exposure to the, the subconcussive repetitive hits to the head have they been taking through the fight? And, you know, we're looking at, is there, you know, eye swelling? Is there, you know, can they see out of the eye that's kind of closing up, you know, and stuff like that for sure. Um, and different lacerations we're looking at. But otherwise, in terms of concussion and, and brain injury signs, we, we definitely look at their feet. You know, their feet start to become maybe flat-footed or they're not as athletic of a stance as they should be. And they're maybe not reacting or they're a little slower with their feet. Because if they're slower with their feet or they're uncoordinated with their feet, then their hands will also follow that based on what we know about the brain and the cerebellum. You know, so we're looking at those subtleties that, you know, others may not not really look at. And then from there, you know, certainly if they're not, they just have a vacant stare, they're just kind of like they're stepping backwards. We call that retropulsion. You know, if they're just starting to really lose their their balance and, and other signs that are a little more obvious at that point. But definitely, you know, their responsiveness to their coach when it's in between rounds, we're, we're looking at them for that too. So there's just a multitude of possibilities, but very subtle uh, often. Is MMA moving in the right direction when it comes to making the sport safer? That's a good question. I think the sport of MMA, you know, something, again, it's the difference between boxing and MMA. 
when looking at boxing, I recently gave a talk where I showed video of decisions made 20 years ago, whether to end a fight or not, and decisions made in October of 2020. And guess what? No difference. The same bad decisions keep getting made in boxing. Boxing is a much more brutal sport. Although MMA has this reputation, um, because of the style of fighting, it's boxing where I worry the most. Do I think boxing has become safer? I'm not sure. Has MMA become safer? I think so. And I think so because they are now owned by large corporate entities who don't like to take the risk. They are concerned about safety and being sued or being disgraced by something going on. And that has really played into our hand in terms of them wanting fights ended before a tragedy and things such as that. So our real problem in these sports are the small local fights that are unregulated. There are states where you don't have to have a physician, any physician at ringside. Okay. There are states where there is no pre-fight physical. There are fighters who come here who are shocked at what you have to do to get into a ring in the state of Connecticut. So there's no national body. And every time they've tried, uh, Senator McCain tried to do that in the past, get some federal regulation over combat sports. It's been defeated. And it's been defeated because yeah. some states um, really thrive on making money off of it through taxing the purses and things like that. So they don't want to discourage these small fights. So it's a it's a great question, but a complicated answer uh, right now. I think the other part, too, that we always talk about is in terms of pre-fight and, and weigh-in stuff is the weight class issue. And that's something that I know my dad's done a lot of work with and trying to get the word out about you know, these athletes cutting weight dramatically. And I, we feel, you know, really that there are fewer weight classes within the MMA world compared to boxing, that it makes it, you know, a real problem from that standpoint that people are cutting weight more dramatically with the MMA field than anything else. And, uh, you know, that's dangerous. It's dangerous to the kidneys. I mean, they don't have fat on their bodies, these athletes, so they have to lose weight in water. And uh, they do it sometimes very irresponsibly, and it uh, it causes kidney failure. It can cause you know just dramatic changes in their vitals, and they're on the brink, you know, where it's really going to go bad sometimes. And and they're puking in the bathroom, and you know who knows what's going on for them to really get their weight down. They'll do anything. So that part has really remained very dangerous. I want to thank you both for joining me today. Also, thanks so much for the work you're doing. Not only to make professional sports safer, but also your work in making sports safer for kids. And Tony, wish you a happy Father's Day, sir. Thank you very much, Steve. It's always great to work with. Thank you, Steve, for having us. Thank you, Steve Coates and Dr. Zalesi and Alessi LaRosa. Check the links in this episode's notes to learn more about Hartford HealthCare's sports neurology program. And for more compelling stories about the risk of traumatic brain injury in fighters and what can be done to better protect them. For Hartford HealthCare, I'm Anne Pierre. Thanks for listening to More Life. I'm ready for my close-up. All the faces start to light up. 